Hello and welcome to Casting Nets. I am one of your hosts, Pastor Dave Rudot. I am joined here with the always jovial Pastor Will Harley. Hello. Pastor Will Harley, you had a very intimate moment with your daughter that you wanted to share as we open up the podcast. Today. I think it was more special than, than intimate, but it was, uh, we were, we, we had been really, you know, kind of liking the, uh, um, Jurassic World movies that had been coming out and my daughter was a little interested in those things. And so, uh, we, we grabbed one of those science books, um, that you have that, that are usually on every good parent shelf, um, <clears throat> that deal with dinosaurs and we were going paging through and, uh, my daughter and I were, were looking for the mything link. And that actually has a, a play into what we're doing today because we're talking about what now? Luther myths. And whether or not we should debunk them, we'll just talk about some of them. We're actually going to, you know, we're, we're going to talk about things that maybe, uh, pastors in the pulpit have used shortcuts to, to say these statements and, or they've referenced it in Bible class without much thought. Maybe even we, Will and myself have done the same thing. And so it's just a, a way for us to grow in our uh, preaching and our ability to be a pastor, especially in our age of, uh, fact checking and, and, uh, myths on in the political world of, of it doesn't matter which political party there's a myth about the other side and so that's that's the world we're living in and we're living in this internet world where every everyone can look things up and they're going like well if pastor is is maybe because he's taking the shortcut mental shortcut when he's preaching or in his bible class what other shortcuts is he taking so so i have a question and we didn't really look this up because it's not on the on the topic of the ones that we're going to deal with but did Luther believe in dragons and dinosaurs? I mean, if you went to Job and he was reading reading Revelation, well, you, you know, you'd have to say he the, the word dragons there, great right. serpent. Yeah, the word dinosaur wasn't invented. Yeah. Well, I mean, giant lizard. So I, I wondered, did he believe in giant lizards? And and I mean, these are hey, deep thoughts. These are deep thoughts. Happen. These are deep thoughts for a morning and. Uh, um, it, it, this tells you the way that this broad, this, this podcast is going to go. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so before we have the, the fun of, uh, going through some of these wonderful topics and trying to debunk some of the Luther myths, um, we do just want to say a, a very brief disclaimer that we are very positive that at some point we are going to offend you in what we say. It's not our intent. It's just that we're rambling. It's two pastors sitting here talking about, uh, our faith, talking about how we deal with life and how we manage to, uh, continue to have a smile on our face when we're standing in front of you dealing with all of your stuff. Um, and so as we have an opportunity to do that, if we do offend you, it is not our intent. You can go and listen to something else. There's some really, really professional people and let the bird fly. Uh, if you want to learn something that is of importance, they will be more than happy to share it with you. Um, but then when you are willing and wanting to have a smile put on your face and laugh a little bit, come back to us and, and give us a, a little bit of your ears. 
And uh, other than that, we will uphold um, the, the the biblical confessions that we have of the Lutheran Church, and uh, we will stick to what it is that our congregations believe and teach. And if we don't, call us on it, and you can reach out. Let us know about how we are doing, what we have done wrong, and maybe give us some ideas of where you would like to see us go. You can do that through our email, castingnets. Uh, pod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us at Facebook. We do have a Facebook presence, um, so you can see our faces there. Um, also, you can catch us on YouTube now. I think we're up on YouTube now. I don't know what the, the page is, probably Casting Nets. Pod. Uh, pod. And there you go. You can find us there. Or you could. And this one is one that I would highly recommend. You can come and see us at our houses on Sunday, our houses of worship, that is, and you can talk with us face-to-face because we would love to have a conversation with you. Because, as my cohort in crime always says, this is just the beginning of a conversation, not the end. Yeah, and if you like this podcast, sometimes this is such a negative disclaimer. Let's have a, I don't know if there's such a thing as a positive disclaimer, but I'm going to invent it. If you like this podcast, give us a review. You can even give us a star. You can give us four stars, but do not, I repeat, do not give us five stars because then we will have such a high opinion of ourselves. So give us four. Dave can't four stand stars. having a bigger head. I can't. Also, it's also, too big already. And also, I would recommend pounding the like button twice. And if you know how that works, you hit it once, it goes on, you hit it again, it goes off. <laughs> anyway, the, um, Adding the likes and the stars and the comments and the reviews helps us uh, spread this podcast to other people. The joy uh, of living a Christian life and living faith uh, is spread to more people by your participation, um, either joining us in conversation or joining us in liking what we have to say. So without further ado, let's go on to the podcast. George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, saying, I cannot tell a lie. Yeah, uh, some maybe. of the myths in the United States, right? Yeah. Or or a guy by the name of Johnny Appleseed who planted all the apple trees. Ooh, or the 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 big blue ox, right? Who is related to uh, Paul, Bunyan. Uh, Paul Bunyan. Yeah, that really tall guy who chops down uh, the logger if you go to the Dells. Um, and you can you go throughout history, even you know Dr. Martin Luther King being a, a very religious man, where the debunking of that myth is that he cheated on his wife, and uh, so all of those things. I think in recent history, uh, in our history books, especially in our public schools, have been trying to take down our heroes and take down our country by uh, um, by uh, in various ways. Well, I think I think myths are are one of the things. Well. Y- I think we need to take a step back just before we we jump on into to the deeper subjects of today and realize that myths have their place. 
Um, myths are important because myths have a tendency to unite cultures. Um, they have a tendency to unite people and to, to unite um, kind of uh, concepts that uh, peoples like to share. Um, I am a huge fan of Arthurian myth. Um, and if you have an opportunity to ever study Arthur, you'd find out that um, King Arthur and everything that's surrounded by King Arthur is just that, a myth. Um, and, and yet there are some wonderful things that come out of it. You know, the, the establishment of a people, you have the establishment of Britain, you have the establishment of a culture, uh, of people desiring to do what is good and right, and yet how bad things can destroy that so easily. So I think you have some of these things that, that are carried with myths that, that are very, very important. But I think the flip side of that is, is there sometimes when we have these myths, we, we cling to them as truth. And then that affects the way we go forward in our own beliefs. Yeah, and that's a very good explanation, uh, a balanced way. I'm, I'm impressed, Will Harley. And uh, I had my coffee, although it's 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 running low. <laughs> it's running. It's so right don't behind expect us. too right much. Right behind us. <laughs> I've got some more brewed, but it doesn't have all the cream and sugar that you like. I don't like sugar. Oh, that's right. The it's the nat- It's the it's the the sweetener that that is bad for you. And right. causes cancer. But yes. you gotta go. <laughs> That's one way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Recently at our church at Emmanuel, we used to have a decaffeinated coffee for the longest time. And uh, we had these, uh, the coffee hosts and then the younger guys were like, you know, we could, we could have, oh, that's what it was. One Sunday when it, nobody signed up to be a coffee host and I was going to be the coffee host. I told people, I was like, I can't make decaffeinated coffee. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. So it's the leaded stuff out there today. And the younger guys were like, oh, we really like the, the, the leaded stuff. And now we have both Here leaded and unleaded. Myth. Here's a coffee myth. And, and I know this, this is, this actually has ramifications in the church today. Here is a coffee myth for you. We have convinced ourselves in the church that Folgers is good coffee. <laughs> That's I'm pouring coffee. <laughs> the only thing better than the sound of pouring coffee would be the opening of a beer can. <laughs> no, uh, the, the, so. there is a myth. There is, though, the myth of uh, of coffee in the Lutheran Church um, that we have convinced ourselves that Folgers is good coffee, or or even Starbucks is good coffee. And if and if your dear listeners don't know, he was playing a, a joke on me because I was actually pour, pouring him Folgers coffee cup. So, <laughs> so he has our standards here are pretty low. So he's got a he he's doing a lot today. I mean, he's sacrificing uh, not only just uh, to be in in my presence, but also uh, to drink no my idea. coffee. You have no idea. So, uh, without further ado, we'll talk about some Luther myths or Lutheran myths and why, why we may not debunk them, why, why they have value. Uh, as you were talking about how a myth sometimes unite a culture and, um, and it's good for you, dear listener, to hear them and to hear pastors talk about these Lutheran myths because then you can see that if we are sharing these myths, maybe it's, we have a, an intent behind it and that it's not just that we are, the wool has been pulled over our eyes. Well, and I also think it's nice for us to understand that we, as a Lutheran church body, um, the Lutheran church body, of course, stands, you know, on the side of scripture and the purity of scripture and the, the correct, um, understanding what God has given to us in Scripture. But it also brings with it some of these things that unite us beyond just that, that, that make us a Lutheran church. 
Um, and that I think those are important for us to, to take a look at because they come up, um, you know, once a year at least. Yeah. Speaking of the one that comes up at once a year, that Luther, this is the myth. Luther nailed the 95 theses on the castle church door to take on the powerful Roman Catholic Church. Um, maybe we, as Lutheran pastors, uh, take this shortcut when we talk about uh, the Reformation. Cause, and, and to be honest, could we just take a side bet? Why don't we celebrate the, uh, the signing of the Augsburg Confession rather than I don't know. Luther <clears throat> um, nailing the 95 Theses? I honestly, and, and I didn't know you were going to go to the signing of the Augsburg Confession, although that would be amazing because that was the formation of the actual Lutheran Church. Um, I actually would say that the, the true Lutheran Church began, or the... I shouldn't say true Lutheran Church. The true Reformation began in 1518 with the Heidelberg Disputation, um, because I, I think this is where the myth comes in with the with the 95 Theses um, is that um, those 95 Theses were not a challenge to anybody. They were a beginning of a discussion. Um, the the it's like it's like saying I'm going to throw onto a community board or I'm going to. Start a podcast. Uh, start a pod, yeah, start a podcast and just say, hey, I'm going to air some of my, my thoughts and have someone start talking. Um, that's what it was during that time. I mean, it wasn't anything – people did that all the time with all sorts of different things. The only difference is, is that he was very long-winded in 95 of them, and and uh, his intent was to start a conversation with his order, his order which was the Augustan monks, um, and not to really have a conversation with the greater Roman church. Yeah. So, and it caught fire because of the subject of the 95 Theses, which was indulgences, which isn't necessarily, that isn't the, the doctrine to, by which the Lutheran Church stands or falls, the teaching of indulgences. So well, that's another reason why sure. we should really be celebrating <clears throat> the. But interestingly, in, interestingly enough, I'm, and maybe you can correct me if, if I'm wrong in my Lutheran history, people really didn't react to the 95 Theses. He, he they, they, they scheduled a, um, the Augustan order, scheduled a meeting with him which happened in 1518 and that was that was in heidelberg and what he brought with him to that meeting was what has been now called the heidelberg disputation which didn't really deal with the 95 theses as much as it dealt with um this is christian life <laughs> and this is what this is the this is the blessings that we have in 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 the lord who gives um, and really dealt with more a theology of the cross as opposed to a theology of glory, um, and, and and so it's it's kind of an. He does weird... talk about repentance in the Heidelberg Disputation, which is a subject of the Ninety Five Theses. But the Ninety Five Theses was meant to talk about indulgences and repentance, whereas the Heidelberg Disputation talks about repentance and Christian life. Right, but like I said, I don't think there was a. I, I don't think that that the Ninety Five Theses produced a conversation on on the indulgences the way that we present it as doing. I I think, and when I hear you say that, I'm 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 thinking, well, it caught fire, it caught attention, it um, caused. Luther to get in trouble with his own order and his own order putting pressure and discussions and things, but it didn't, it wasn't like people were, uh, that this was actually the, the, the focus quickly shifted right. from away from indulgences and repentance to authority. What right does the church have to put the pressure on Martin Luther? And Martin Luther was examining himself saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you putting all this pressure on telling me to do these things just because you're the church? Where does your authority come from? And that leads them to the scriptures right. as the scriptures alone rather than what the Roman Catholic Church says. 
So the myth about we didn't even talk about did Luther actually nail the ninety five theses, but that's one of those things. Sticky tech. Sticky tech. Luther never mentions that he ever nailed the ninety five theses on the on the Castle Church wall. That's something that Philip Melanchthon added uh, later. Philip Melanchthon wasn't even there in fifteen seventeen, so it could have been Philip Melanchthon did some shorthand as he was explaining the the life of Luther, where he said Luther put the ninety the nailed the ninety five theses on there when it was maybe have been a janitor or some uh, church administrator who is charged with the responsibility of making sure that that bulletin board, which was right. the the door was, that it was everything was neat and orderly. And and you know it's one of those things where <clears throat> you know. It, I guess I've always envisioned it less of him taking a mallet and pounding on the door, although that's really kind of a a neat thing to hear the the pounding of the hammer on the door and and you're starting to think, oh, you know, Reformation's coming. Um, I kind of think of it more as there was probably a bunch of nails on the door already and he just walked up and he pushed the parchment into the nail, (laughs) you know, because other people had probably posted, you know, their lost dog and... And things on the on the on the church door. We have we have no idea. We don't. But I I, I kind of think that. I mean, if you look at how bulletin. I mean, I just I kind of look at how bulletin boards are in in the grocery store and things like that today. And and I, people don't change all that much. I mean, we might change the materials. We might change. Uh, you know, we use sticky tack, or we might use those uh, push thumbnails from you know those uh, thumb pins uh, to push in our our stuff. But I don't think that's that's really changed. I mean, even in 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 American culture, when they had announcement boards, you know, they had stuff that was already there, and people would rip it down and then just push on something new. Um, I I think it was there was a system, <clears throat> and then he used the system to 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 let his message be known. And, and he was called to do that. I mean, he yeah. was he was within his right to have a, a discussion and to provide this teacher's guide, this ninety five theses for that discussion. It's just that the subject matter was so provocative, uh, attacking something that the Roman Catholic Church liked, which was the selling of indulgences because it provided money. Well, and I think that that brings up another, another, and I don't know if it's a Lutheran myth, um, but maybe it is. You know, one of the myths that we have about Luther is is that uh, he's very, he's got crass language. He calls, you know, the papacy donkeys and but he doesn't use the word donkey <laughs> and all these other things. And, and we're like, how can he get away with that kind of stuff? I think, I think that that becomes the, the, the myth that Luther is belligerent and that Luther is um, not respectful and things of that nature. <clears throat> and I think there's only one time um, that somebody ever, and it was Melanchthon who accused Luther of not being the most respectful. And that was during um, in, in Luther's response to Erasmus, when he wrote um, the bondage of the will, and and Melanchthon had said, this was not a this was you you were not respectful to his position. Um, I think that's the myth that that you know they lived in a culture where where people were were freeish to bring forth ideas, and that their ideas could be expressed in in what we would consider today to be a little bit crass because that's how they talked. I think that that's so I don't know if that's necessarily a myth that we look at and say, you know, he was such a crass person. I don't think he was. I think he could be. He was a a, a person of his time. So right. whoever the the crassness of Martin Luther also has to be weighed with the crassness of other people's other of his contemporaries, um, because we can't just 
put Luther in 2022 and say, Luther, you have to talk like we talk. Absolutely. Um, well, be, before we talk about what Luther talks about, okay, um, I think we might have to to tackle the great myth of how Luther got to where he was before he could talk. Yeah, that that was that was a good one that you brought up. Let's talk more about that. Well, so so the myth is um, that uh, uh, Luther was going to be a lawyer and was supposed to go to school to be a lawyer. That's what his dad wanted him to be, and he was traveling and got into a very very bad storm. And um, the storm was so bad that it uh, caused Luther to um, spout off a not well thought out promise uh, to the Lord that he would become Saint Anne. A, Saint Anne, sorry, um, that he would become a monk. That uh, um, that if he was if he was seen, seen through the storm, he would become a monk and dedicate his entire life to to the religious orders. Um, and so. Uh, the, the myth goes that he was brought through the storm and he dropped everything and he became this monk. Um, and, and I think the myth is understood that this storm was so bad, it was his life changing moment. Um, so what would we say to that? Isn't it that just a summary of what was going on? It, it summarizes the angst that Luther was feeling, um, with the what he had, his conscience, he was a he was a man of conscience. So his conscience bothered him. The system that he was brought up in was that God would uh, forgive him if he was if he was did A, B, or C, and he never felt uh, love for this God because the God had this God put requirements on him that he could never keep, and his conscience consistently bothered him about that. So the storm may have been the catalyst, or may have been the the last draw. And, but uh, it was a, an entire childhood, a young adulthood of Martin Luther struggling with uh, what he had been taught and what his conscience was telling him. Yeah, I mean, he was he was the 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 first Jonathan Edwards, right? Um, he felt he was in the hands of an angry God all the time, um, and he lived his entire life with that burden. And even even after he came to to. Um, knowledge of the gospel, he still struggled mightily with what his obligations were. Um, uh, you know, and, and so I, th- I think you're right that it makes a really good story that there is one moment in life that changes everything. And, and I think that's the, that's the kind of myth we like. We like to, to think that there's this one big moment in our life that will change the course of everything. Um, and that, you know, it's, it goes to the myth of the church that, you know, just give me the silver bullet, right? Um, our marriage or give is give me falling. a big sign, Lord. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you only would show me the sign, you know, and, uh, you know, um, but I think that's the myth that we have even carry on today. And, and, and that is, you know, marriages are falling apart. And so the last at Jefford is we're going to go to pastor and he's going to give us the silver bullet, the grand big thing that's going to fix it. Um, or, or, you know, we have these troubles in life and God's going to just all of a sudden I'm driving down and I see this, I see the, I see a shadow of a street sign and it shows the cross and that's the life changing moment of everything. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where, where, you know, the Lord works in many small moments in the whispers, um, of his gospel and, and he changes and, and, and brings people to his understanding. Um, he uses his law to chip away at the, the stone cold heart over time sometimes. Um, sometimes there's mighty swings, but those mighty swings usually end up in resulting in us responding in anger, not obedience. Um, and, and so I think if we, if we chalk up everything to Luther's 
transitional moment to the storm, I, I think we do a disservice to to God's work throughout his entirety of his early childhood, which which was leading him down this road to to prepare him for something. Um. Yeah. That's that's good. We've got two myths out of the way. Good. It is good. It is good. Um, but now we can talk about Luther because now we know where he came from. He he was supposed to be a lawyer. Now he's a monk. Now he's in the monastery. He's a monk. He becomes a pastor because of his guilt. His guilt drives him to become a pastor. Well, to teach. and his uh, leader. Well, uh, the, uh, because they were tired of dealing with his guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Make Luther so busy. Let's have him teach at the University of Wittenberg because he'll be so busy he won't have time to think about himself. Absolutely. So that, that was Stelpitz, right? Yeah. 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 All right, so moving on to the next myth uh, that uh, we have about Luther, and that is Luther defied Pope and Emperor with the words, Here I stand. It's his frozen moment. It's frozen. <laughs> Here I stand in the light of day. <laughs> Let it go. go. No? No, we're not going to. Is that copyrighted? <laughs> we can only sing like two bars of it. That's it. <laughs> that Disney's coming after us. Get a warning. <laughs> Copyrighted material in your show. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Frozen creators. It was first founded by Luther. <laughs> um, okay, so at the Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther was asked to, to renounce his controversial writings. There was It was more than just one event. He w- walked into the room and there was... Um, it was very intimidating for Martin Luther. Let's put it that way. Uh, the Here I Stand is a nice summary of two days of events, of Luther being all by himself, standing in this room, recognizing that he might be put to death, that he is he is being asked to recant all of his writings. It doesn't seem like uh, anybody in the room, because it's, it's filled with um, uh, church dignitaries, it's filled with government dignitaries. You know, this Martin Luther is not used to uh the uh the politics of the day or the the hierarchies of the higher ups the uppity ups uh, in, in the room so it was a very intimidating setting it, it was very intimidating and let's be honest um the here i stand i can do no other really makes for awesome reformational theme right because otherwise his, it makes for to say here i stand is 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 great for publicity for the lutheran church and the other one is just too long-winded because what he actually said was i cannot and will not recant anything or to go against conscience is neither right in or safe uh, right nor safe right nor safe um and god help me amen um that that doesn't have the the catchiness of here I stand. Or the boldness, yeah. But it was very bold for him to stand there and say, I'm not going to recant this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could probably say, and, and if I remember correctly, in that conversation, he says, if you can prove to me where I have erred according to Scripture, he said, then I will burn my books personally. Yeah. Um, and but, the, the Roman Catholic's mistake was they, they asked him to recant everything, right. not just— and Luther was open to it. Like, if there's something in here that you guys don't like— you know, show show me from scripture, and I'll recant it. But the Roman Roman uh, Roman Catholic was pushing down hard on him and in their authority, like they were they were going to quash this rebellion because 
I, I don't know exactly why, but I assume because he's attacking their their cash cow indulgences. So, and he's a, a, um, re- rebuking their authority. Uh, the Antichrist throughout history is okay with just about everything except for somebody challenging his authority. So, uh, that is the um, uh, the there there is a tension I think that you're finding in um, by fifteen twenty one. In in Germany, there's a there's a rising tension, and the rising tension is there's discomfort between the German princes and the um, established government. Um, there is discomfort in the um, taxation, you might say, of the church and the attitude of the church. And so, I think you have this perfect storm that God created, where where you have this angst that is being created. Um, in the atmosphere, in, in the, the church's reaction, uh, and when I say the church, I mean the Roman Catholic Church, not the, the, the body of believers, those who are following the words and institutions of Christ. Um, <clears throat> you have the response of the secular, of the, uh, the organization of the church head proper, who says, we are going to make a statement. And so they come out with this statement, which is, we are going to squash this and become a unified whole again so that we can move forward. Um, at this time, if I remember correctly, they're starting to have some incursions by the, by the, uh, um, um, the Muslims coming in that uh, they used yeah. to call them the Turks. And so, you know, this idea of having a unified front, um, of the Holy Roman Empire really was a, a big thing during that time. And so they look at this and they say, okay, we have an upstart, we have an upstart theologian who's starting to, to sound really good to a lot of people, including the German princes. And I think there's a lot of fear going on, um, in this idea of these German princes won't stand united with us when we need them to because we're not united in religion. And, um, that is a very legitimate fear, I think. And so they, re- so the church responds, um, the Catholic church responds in, in, in a way that is not Christian. Um, and they demand recanting based on their theology, which is what the church says rules, um, without proof or without, uh, question. And it, what Luther says, even though it is far from the myth, is encapsulated in the myth. Yes. And 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 so this was one of those where I'm like, yeah, he didn't really say that because one, it would have been in German anyway. <laughs> but man, all oh, the crickets. <laughs> but 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 it's it's one of those it's one of those things that 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 even though it's not what he said, those those words encapsulate what what was going on in his own heart. Yeah, which is which I I I can't do anything else other than stand here behind what I have done because so help me God is right. Yeah, because I've been convinced from Scripture, not from the church, but from Scripture that I've been convinced of this. So if you hear your pastor talk about here I stand as if that really happened, you you understand now why we would why a pastor would say that because it does encapsulate what was going on in those two days at the Diet of Worms. Right, and 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 I think that's a. It, it is a it is a good summation. Now it can be used against us too, um, because I think sometimes we have gotten complacent in our Lutheranism, and we we can now use that statement "Here I stand" as the blatant blatant statement of "I'm not going to I'm not going to converse with you," 
I'm not going to talk with you and I don't want to explain to you. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And this is how it's going to be done. Here I stand. I can do no other. Um, and we've, we've sort of taken on the, the role of the Catholic Church in that. <laughs> right? That's a very good point. Uh, here I stand. I don't want to listen to you. Here I stand. I don't want to actually have a conversation. Or here I stand. I don't want to, I don't want to actually study this word that convicts my heart. Um, and that's one of my, the irritations I have with, uh, God's word is our great heritage and shall be ours forever. And it's like, yeah, I understand when we sing that we're, we're intending that we're going to be in God's word forever, but it does come across to me. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe it comes across to me like this is our right. Uh, this is, this is something guaranteed to us because we have the name Lutheran. Or, or even so bold as to saying that, that we're the only ones that have it because of our heritage. Um, but you know what? If you study the Lutheran Church, you find out that that many of people who are so-called Lutheran found that the, the here I stand is further down wind from where Luther stood, um, and and in bad places, and have 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 taken their stands in poor poorer atmospheres. Um, you know, you, you would say that the 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 largest Lutheran church is the Elka uh, ELCA. Uh, Lutheran Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, um, and the vast majority of them are so far from Christian, um, where where you would because they question the the validity of Scripture, they question um, whether it is God's word at all, or how the Triune God identifies Himself. Yeah, um, and that they're so far away from from what the Scriptures are that that where they stand, if they were going to ever say, "Here we stand" or "Here I stand." Um, Luther would be turning over in his grave going, I think I called the donkey. Yeah, the wrong thing, the, the donkey. Wrong, wrong thing, the donkey. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, they're, they're, you, you got to be careful. Um, and these, are, these are wonderful. This, this particular myth is, is such a wonderful treasure, but you got to keep it in the context in which it's found, which is if you prove to me from God's word that I am wrong, I can't stand here anymore. But if that has not happened, I'm going to stand on God's word, not stand on my principles. Not he didn't stand on his 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 own laurels, his own creditation, his own his own ideas. He stood on God's word, and he said, "This is what God's word says." Now, if you don't like my opinion about it, if you don't like the way I whatever, prove to me where I was wrong from God's word, and and, and just as my last plug, and then we got to move on. I understand. This is the opportunity of the church polity. This the, the 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 members of the congregation. If your pastor is is preaching and you hear something and you're like, I don't know if I agree with that or that doesn't sound right. You have the right obli- and obligation and and um, calling to go back to scripture, and if he's wrong, to come to him and say. You were wrong, and and we are held by the scriptures to recant and say I was wrong. I can't stand there. I I can't do that because we stand on scripture alone. That's a good point. Because what do people normally do? They just leave. They don't have their. They don't feel like they have. They have an obligation, or nor do they feel like they have that they are welcome to come into the pastor's office and say, Pastor, you said this on your sermon. I have. I struggle with this. And for the pastor to clarify, maybe the pastor is like, you know what? I maybe I spoke. Too far in one direction. The pastor is a sinner as well. And if pastors aren't open 
to a correction, they are not standing with Martin Luther. Yeah, I, and I think that's the part of the myth that I love the most is is not just his boldness in standing and saying I'm going to be defiant, um, but is his boldness to say I'm standing on what I truly believe, and and if I'm proven wrong in this belief, then I stand corrected. But until that happens, I'm going to stand here, um, and and I think every pastor should do that. If 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 you're if you're if you are afraid, and this is to the pastors out there, if you are afraid of your church member coming and correcting you because you said something wrong or asking you to defend why you said something that you said, then you shouldn't have said it. I, 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 I hate to say it that way, but if, if you are saying something that, that you yourself are not sure of and that you yourself, if you're just spouting off something in the pulpit that, that, well, this has always been accepted, so I'm just going to repeat it ab, ab nauseum, you know, then what is going to happen is, Someone is going to come and question you, and you have every right to be afraid of them coming to question you because you don't know why you said it to begin with. But if you know and you've done your text study and you have dealt with with the, the matters of law and gospel and you have, have beaten your own heart down with God's word and then had been lifted up by Christ, when you stand in the pulpit or you stand in the classroom and you're teaching and you say these things and, and you, you put your foot down and you kind of say, here I stand – in the way that you present the material, just like Luther, if someone comes and asks, can you explain it? You shouldn't have a problem. I mean, that, 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 that you should welcome that because now we can have a conversation. All right. That's my soapbox. All right. We're, soapboxes are good because this is what this podcast is all about. Two pastors just having a conversation. We're letting you, dear listener, in on a conversation. Uh, organization, where did they, where professionalism. Did they... That's not what this podcast is about. This is about real life. Yeah, not real professionalism. Life. Not professional. I just have a question. Where did where did soapboxes come from? Like, I mean, have you ever thought about it? Like, I've never seen soap come in a box. I mean, I've seen it come in. in... Come, it's Irish Spring used to come in a box, didn't it? Was, mo- I, that's a very that's small way, box. That's way on. too expensive for me. <laughs> I go to like the dollar store Sorry. and get it like wrapped in that wax paper. <laughs> uh, well, dear listener, you can write in and email us and talk to us in person. stand on that little box. <laughs> so next myth is that Luther used uh, bar tunes or drinking songs for hymn tunes. Uh, this is where truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. Uh, the association with the quote-unquote bars come from a mistaken understanding of a term that hymnologists use to describe the form of Luther's hymnody, which is called bar form. So somewhere along the line, someone heard bar form and translated that to mean he used music from taverns. But bar form simply means that the melody would begin with a theme repeated once before introducing a secondary theme and then adding the last part of the original theme. So it's like A, B, A, B, C, B. A mighty fortress is our God is such a melody. So for all those who are not dived into music and and in tune with how that would go, realize that the confusion is most music that we gravitate to is music that you would probably have for the natural consumption because it's pleasant to the ear. So so the the arrangement of the music is in a bar form, but it's not like he was the only person ever to do that. 
so it is, you know, if you if you think of the bards of old, right, they would play a tune and it wasn't a tune that didn't have a rhythm and it wasn't a tune that didn't have a repeat or or a, a refrain of some sort where it would come back and follow a, a pattern. Um, and, and I think that's that's kind of where we we sometimes lose sight of of we, we try to place into Luther. He was like. Um, every man's man, right? He was out there drinking and he was tossing them back. And I mean, he liked his beer. <laughs> I mean, that's a Lutheran tradition, not a myth. <laughs> uh, he, he liked his beer, but, but I mean, he, he wasn't out whining and dining in the bars. Um, he just, he liked music and he had an ear for music and he and, could write it. Yeah. But you know, a mighty fortress, awesome, great. Um, but you would probably know better. But there are some Lutheran hymns, or Luther hymns specifically, where you're like, I can't sing this. I, I can't sing this at all. Because um, the, the Germans would be used to it, because that's the, the music that they were used to to singing. But for us, sometimes we, we, we aren't used to that anymore. Now, now, let me just ask you this question. Is it really that offensive, though? I mean, yes, I, I, I agree with you that these are, it's, the bar song is, is really describing the type of layout of the instrumentation as opposed to, or, or where the it notes, comes from. as opposed to where it comes from. But are you really opposed to taking a secular tune and, and applying it to, to, a, a spiritual lyrics? You know, I'm torn on that because you want something that people can sing. But then, on the other hand, you don't want you want. <clears throat> thank you for asking the question because I I'm I'm torn on this one because you want to be able to have your worship life on Sunday morning to in some ways be able to be taken to the rest of the week. Like you're not what is happening on Sunday is a representation of what happens the rest of the week. You want that, so you want something that's common, familiar. But at the same time, you want to talk about this. The Lord's gifts are being offered here, and let's 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 elevate our minds to things above. And so, you want to have a, a type of music that would uh, lift people's hearts towards God, and not if I'm singing this song, I'm thinking of the other lyrics <laughs> to the song. So, but if it's good enough lyrics, I mean, Weird Al songs. My kids sing Weird Al songs, and they don't have no idea what the real song is. <laughs> so it's like, well. <laughs> yeah. So, so dear listener, Pastor Rudot has just affiliated some himself with Weird Al, Weird Al, and spiritual songs, songs and Weird with, Al. Weird Al with that connection. But but you know, here's the thing. You know, you go back into the Psalms and and you look at the Psalms and and you look at so when we look at the headings of the Psalms and we say like to the director of the choir according to the tune, that's all part of the Psalm. Um, we we have that as a heading and we we mark that as a heading in the Psalms. But but some of those things and 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 um um. Theologians and commentators who who deal with the Psalms look at those and say these were popular tunes that were played at that time, and they have now they 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 amalgamated that tune with these words. Um, and and we do that. And if you if you notice the the new hymnal, we've taken some tunes from other hymns and we placed them with different lyrics, um, and we've changed it. And so I I kind of look at that and I'm saying I, I think to myself I'm like you know the idea. What's the idea of of hymnody in the church? The idea of hymnody in the church is to access a different portion of your brain to sing a sermon and have the the, the congregation preach to each other the wonders and the, and the grace and the words of the Lord through song. 
if you have to do that through a way that they understand in a way that they can follow in a way that they can sing, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I know this leads into another conversation that, that we don't want to have maybe today about the new hymnal and, and how some of the songs are just hard for a congregation to be able to sing to each other these wonderful words of our Savior. Whereas you put it into a song, I mean, I'm not saying, okay, let's, let's get, you know, um, Backstreet songs and and take the lyrics of a Backstreet song or the not the lyrics but the tune, the 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 melody of a Backstreet song Backstreet Boy song and and put Christian He's dating music himself, to it. Dear I am dating myself. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying those things, but but I think this is the attempt that we've had in Christianity where where we've always been 20 years late on the upswing of trying to amalgamate things um, into our worship. Because we are, we are like you are, where you're like, I'm kind of little, little bit nervous about taking something that is a modern tune and applying it to to a religious aspect. Um, where I am, maybe less of that, and I'm, I, I would say, hey, you know what? If you're going to go home whistling a tune, have the have the right have different the right words. words. To it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Weird Al songs that I don't mind my kids singing, but if they actually do the real well, song, I'm talking I about bet Backstreet my, my... Boys and and the and not that I'm a Backstreet Boy fan, and you're talking about Weird Al. <laughs> don't even talk to me about dating myself. I mean, I could have brought up my, I mean, my favorite Weird. bands, you know, Led Zeppelin and Metallica. That dates me. Um, you know, I was trying to get to the '90s. You know, our our <laughs> listeners are, you know. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, we have one more myth that I wanted to talk about uh, today, and that was Luther was the first person to translate the Bible into the language of the people. So that's the myth, that before Luther, the Bible had not been translated in the language of the people. It's wrong, kind of. Uh, German translations were around. Um, they were from the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were hard to read, and that was compounded by the fact that the German language was hard to understand. There were all these different dialects. So the beauty and um, the beauty of Luther's uh, Luther German translation is the the way that the care that the intense care that Luther took, not just in studying the Greek and the Hebrew, but also uh, studying his own language and putting his own language to paper, which actually formed the German language itself. So so. Let me get this straight. The myth is, the myth essentially is that Lutherans did the Bible translation better. That's the myth. The myth is that it, <laughs> it hadn't been done before, right? And it had been done before. The Bible had. The truth is that the we truth did it is better. the Lutherans just do it better. <laughs> Things better, and that's why you should go and buy the EHV Bible because <laughs> Lutherans do it better. <laughs> right. <laughs> so myth yeah, confirmed. Myth confirmed. <laughs> myth busted. Myth confirmed. Um, so yeah, there were, were other translations of the German Bible available before Luther. There were English translations. Of, uh, John Wycliffe was one who translated the Bible into English in 1384. It wasn't authorized. The Roman uh, Catholic Church uh, squashed it. Um, and the same thing with Martin Luther with his writing of the translation, if he wasn't such a um, a powerful force by this time, most likely would have been one of the reasons why he was he could have been put to death. Yeah, and I, th- I think we have to take a step back and we have to, and, and I think we, we need to take a look at, at saying, you know, this myth is, is 
is a wonderful myth, uh, and Luther did an extraordinarily wonderful job. Um, <clears throat> but I think we need to we need to see the perfect storm in the time frame that he was living in. Um, there is, in many cases, and and this is. Um, there's two different things that I would probably say to, to one against the, 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 the church of the time, uh, the, the, the universal church at the time, and the other one is, uh, is uh, a credit to the universal church at the time. And the first one is uh, against the universal church at the time. The universal church at that time um, really guarded the scriptures as saying that that not everybody is able to understand them, everybody's not able to handle them, and so uh, did not want the scriptures out to the masses because they were very hesitant in in allowing that information to to be spread because they said they're going to mishandle the word of God. On the other side of that coin, they also um, felt very compelled uh, to make translations that were true to the text. They held the text in very high regard. And and not just in high regard of saying, did we translate it right to the very best of our ability, but did we beautify the actual writing of it? I mean, you look at some of the, the, the texts that are around of the scriptures at that time. I mean, they were beautiful books um, that people took great time and, and great pleasure in, in making sure that they presented the very, very best to the church. The question, the true question is, did they smell them? Well, they're leather. Of course they did. <laughs> I mean, because leather has that, leather has that just, that beautiful scent that is carried along with it that says, this is divine. Um, get it, bovine? <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> um, but Having no, some fun. Folks. Yes, yes, because you know bovine leather is <laughs> very good. Um, but here's here. But here's the thing. Here here's the thing. Um, the perfect storm that that changed it all for for Luther was the invention of the printing press. I mean, Gutenberg had the the, the first thing that came off of Gutenberg's uh, type press was the Bible. Um, and well, no, well. The, First book you, you the, the first book that yeah ninety five theses came came off of the but the first book, book. that he made was okay. was the translation the German translation of the Bible um, the Gutenberg Bible was was this this first fully compiled thing that was was printed out there um, and it is an important turn in what's going on in the world at that time and and Luther was a master at using the printing press. Um, you know, his, his PR people <laughs> knew exactly what they were doing to be able to get things out there, right? And to be able to, to, uh, show things and, uh, make sure that, that it was massly produced and mass, um, disseminated. And so with the, the printing press now being able to put these books out, um, you had a, a, a great wealth of ability that you didn't have to have. One person could put this together. Um, and then they could just keep printing and printing and printing and printing, and you would have the same copy over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, whereas the other, 
translations, you know, people took painstaking effort to try to copy down and there was checks and balances to make sure that it was correct and right. Um, you had different areas of study in different monasteries where, you know, that's what they did. They just copied the scriptures and they were meticulous in their in their copying of it. And if they made a mistake, um, there are some traditions where they wouldn't scratch it out. They wouldn't, you know, take out a word. They, they would destroy the entire thing and you started over. That whole page is gone. Um, and, and you started over because you made a mistake. Um, so there's a lot of, of things that are happening in that time frame with Luther coming out with this translation that, that make it a perfect storm for, for the time that God desired for it to be. So we debunk, debunk the myth, but it's also also talked about the the value of Luther's Bible, Luther's translation, how it transformed the German language, how it, it was so beneficial for God's people to not just read the Bible in their own language, but be able to understand uh, the Bible in their own language. Uh, Luther's adaptation of uh, the of the Bible, writing it into German, you know, he did things like famously like adding alone to Romans 3 by faith alone. Well, why did he add that? Well, that's the German idiom. It, it's, it, he's trying to make this uh, trans, translate into the, the German mind. Well, I think I think and, then we need to mention, though, that because he, he did that, he what he did is he did um, he did not do direct equivalent. So he didn't take Greek and Hebrew and say, Okay, I'm just going to take whatever the Greek says, whatever the Hebrew says, and I'm going to directly put it into German. Yes. <clears throat> he did. He did a um, dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence, which is a really big word that says he he took the very thoughts and the flavor of the scripture from the Greek and Hebrew, and he Germanized it so that it would be understood by the people. Um, and we have translations that do that now, right? You would say the NIV, you'd say the the CSB, um, some of those. Um, to a certain extent, the EHV too. Certain to a certain extent, right? Um, they are, and because if you had direct equivalent, it'd be very clunky because you'd be like, "This is really tough to read." Because you don't know Greek or you don't know Hebrew, you don't know their idioms, you don't know their structure of sentences and so on. Exactly. So he he did a wonderful thing there. But like I said, you know, the printing press and the way that it was able to disseminate answers your question of how was it able? How did his translation change and influence the very fabric of the German language? Well, it's because it was readily available. They were able to get it out to the people and they could afford it as opposed to only the wealthy being able to buy it and, and look at it because it was been so expensive. Um, so it, it, it is a very good myth in the sense that it is an important thing that happened in history. It's a false myth in the sense that he wasn't the only one that, that wanted to give to the people God's word. And he wasn't the first. And he wasn't the first. It's just that his worked better because he's Lutheran. <laughs> the, Lord, <laughs> the Lord blessed it. The, Lord, the perfect storm, wanting the Lord wanting the gospel to be in the hands of God's people. We're Lutheran. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. That's not true. I, that's... He's just being fun, guys, Gales. Now we uh, missed one. You, no, you oh, no. I wanted to. I wanted to finish off talking about the myth that you had brought up. Okay, all and, right. And the myth that. <clears throat> I really liked it because I was like, here's my list of myths I want to talk about today. There's one I didn't want to talk about. And if, listener, if there is a myth that you want us to talk about, write us in to castingnetspod at gmail.com or you can Facebook us as well. But the myth that I really liked that you brought up was that's Catholic. Yeah, that's – I if I had a penny for every time in my ministry that I have heard 
well, we can't do that. That's Catholic. Um, I would be able to retire already and be a very wealthy man. Um, we have a tendency in the Lutheran Church that that we push against, and and that's not just the Lutheran Church. I think it's in the in the Reformed practice as well. That um, anybody non-Lutheran, anybody non-Lutheran or Catholic um, or Catholic, um, that they push against Catholicism, and they look and they go back to the Reformation and they say we broke away from Catholicism and and they kicked us out and and now we can't do this because that's Catholic. Um, and Luther never would have said that. I, I think the myth that, that Luther rebelled against the Catholic Church and Luther led the charge in, in, um, in breaking away and, and, and reforming everything, um, really denies the very word reformation and denies the very thing that Luther truly tried to do. Um, he didn't, he didn't try to strip Catholicism. He he wanted to reform it, and and he he found great value in much of what what they retained because God's word was there and being being used. Um, I don't. I I. I in fact, that's the reason that got him out out of the Wartburg ca- uh, Castle, wasn't it? Is that Karlstadt started re- Reformation that they were just throwing out anything that was anything remotely Catholic, and uh, Luther came down and had his. Uh, um, it, was it the invoc ingo inco Cohabit sermons, the eight sermons where he quieted the riots um, because Karlstadt had just said, let's just throw everything out and caused all kinds of disturbance, whereas Martin Luther was more of one where if it's if it's good, if it's edifying God's people, keep it. If it's against the gospel, throw it out. Right. You'd maybe be able to use that term to, to maybe better understand it, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you know, there are, there are things in the Catholic Church where we would say, this is unscriptural. This is, this is not a good practice because it is taking people away from the focus of Christ and, and therefore you should not have it. Um, but does the Catholic Church retain the sacrament of baptism? Yes. Does it have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Yes. And Luther said those are good things. Um, did they add other things that aren't sacraments? Yes. And then did Luther say those aren't things? Yes. Did he say they're bad things? No. But those are not those aren't holy things. They're not things that change our standing before the Lord. And so he would say I mean and if you are so in the in in if you are in that camp even today where you're like you can't do that that's catholic. Well then baptism can't be done because that the catholic church has it. Don't come up for communion because the catholic church has it. And I would say to you you would even say to me, "No, no, I I need baptism. I need the Lord's Supper." I know because that's Christian. <laughs> um and and so you can't just say everything is wide sweeping catholic. Um one of the things that I would mention in this in this and I don't know if you do it, um but the idea of crossing yourself um after the reception of of communion or some people would even cross themselves at the beginning of the church um in the invocation um or whenever the pastor makes a sign of the cross or makes a sign of the cross um I I know many Catholics will make the the uh, sign of the cross over themselves um in the invocation because it is a remembrance of their, ba- baptism. their baptism um and the blessing because it's a remember of well this is why I'm I'm baptized now I go out into the world right um but have you heard in your congregations, because I know I have in, in my congregations, but pastor, that's a Catholic thing. 
Yeah, what are the things that people uh, I label as, that's too Catholic, or that's Catholic, we can't do it. Sign of the Cross is a big, probably the biggest one. Um, what prayer is, of Thanksgiving. The Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayer. Uh, that's in the new hymnal that was not in the old hymnal. That was a, a point of contention as to whether they should have it there or not. Um, and would I say that the, the Eucharistic prayer that was that's in the Catholic Church is faulty? I would. But but to have a Thanksgiving prayer after receiving um, the Lord's Supper, what a wonderful opportunity to return to our Lord his promises that he has made with us. Another um, tradition of the Roman Catholic Church that's labeled as that's Catholic, we don't do it, the imposition of ashes. Yeah, uh, beautiful. It's a beautiful I, – I did the imposition of ashes in my congregation in South Dakota. I have yet to really introduce it because uh, here in Emmanuel, we just ha- our Lenten tradition was – different because we were a dual parish and we had different traditions that came up with that so we're moving away to moving away from those traditions back to a tradition of a, a singular par- parish but that's one of the things that I would like to reintroduce I did it in in peer it's very powerful just the idea of of uh you putting ashes on your own children I mean when my kids were little babies putting ashes on them to, just a reminder that they are mortal that they are eventually going to die the 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 uh the the sad truth that we're all mortal, but then at the end, at I don't know about you, but at the end of every um, Ash Wednesday service, we would sing "Savior When in Dust to You," which has some very sad lyrics, but a very joyful melody. So, so it's like you know, it's um, but it's the it, it starts off sad, but it begins and ends in a very positive note because we're we're thinking about we're going to head to heaven. This is this is. This is what is looking. This is what I'm looking forward to because uh, I am a mortal person and I will return to dust. But these these ashes will one day be resurrected. So Ash Wednesday isn't uh, necessarily as sad as it can be because it's a joyful recognition of yeah we're dust, but this dust is going to rise again. Yeah, and, and I think I think the imposition of ashes is a, is something that people look at and say, well, that's what the Catholic Church does, and it's it's something that I think Lutherans. Some Lutherans push back on too hard because it's it becomes uh, maybe more pietistic in their response as opposed to theologically they have an actual problem with it. Um, but yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the other one that I, I think is um, – and it's floating around in, in the Lutheran church um, in certain circles is um, the wearing of, of the garments, the, the religious garments, and, and having the, <clears throat> the colors of – of the 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 liturgy or the lection, um, so you have the the lectionary calendar and you have the colors of the the year. Um, those oh, wearing are, an album and pyramids yeah, rather than the just pyramids. the black Geneva. Well, the black Geneva is, is <laughs> so. Here's the story. So the black Geneva. Everybody, um, I I hate the black Geneva um, with a passion um, because the black Geneva is a judicial gown and it comes from reformed non-Lutheran or Catholic tradition who believe and uphold the law over the gospel. The actual tradition of the Catholic church is the black, um, uh, the black gown or, or the black, uh, um, what is the full gown again? Um, The cassock. The cassock. I'm not, see you're, you lost me. So I, (laughs) 
So, so, so but anyway, the point of the matter is Elb is old. Yeah. <laughs> Older than. Yeah. The Elb, the Elb is really the tradition of the church. Um, it has been the tradition of the church. Typically it was black. Um, and that was only black because they had to walk around in dirt and it showed less dirt than white did. And then they would put a white, uh, pyramid over it. Um, <clears throat> a white, white thing over it. But that being said, I, I think that there is there's a beauty in you know that's not catholic in the sense of it is trying to give an image to the people that we are covered the white alb gives the image of not law but gospel that i am a white robed um um believer in Christ covered in the blood of Christ and made whiter than snow and that this is a representation of all the people who gather in his name um, that that we are these things, and then during the the season of Lent, we wear the black because <laughs> whether you see it or not, I am I am a sinner in need of being cleaned, and so you you have these representations. The colors, of course, um, just a good highlight of of uh, you know trying to per- give by picture where where are we in the church here. Um, you can take it or leave it, but it, it's not a bad thing. Um, the lectionary that you love so much. Is a Catholic thing. Um, I mean, so you, you, you can definitely go back and say, um, hey, the readings <laughs> that we follow, that, that was Catholic. Um, and when we kind of grabbed onto that and said, hey, this is a good thing. We go through the life of Christ. Let's, let's do that. Um, I don't know. I, 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 any more other big pressing, you know, that's, oh, candles, freestanding altar. Those are the two. That's Catholic, right? Um, and, and, and I, whether you like candles or not, you know, the, the fact that, that candles are there isn't necessarily Catholic. It goes back to the temple worship and, and, and having the light of, of the Lord among us. Um, but I do want to say as before we, we get to the end of the myth, the, the idea of the freestanding altar, um, many Lutheran churches will say the freestanding altar is Catholic. It's not, or it hasn't been, uh, except since 1950, <laughs> um, before 1950, it was Catholic to have an altar pushed all the way back to the wall where the, the, the pastor would have their back turned to the people uh, while they are, are consecrating the elements of, of Holy Communion. Um, and it was a very Lutheran tradition to have a freestanding altar where the pastor pronounces over the elements to the people. Um, and then all of a sudden the Catholic Church says, hey, that's really cool. Why don't we do that? And then all of a sudden the turn on the Lutheran Church is, but that's too Catholic. we got to go back to pushing our altars against the wall. There's actually a, a painting of Luther in a freestanding altar, isn't there? There is. And one of the first actually Lutheran-constructed churches uh, during the Reformation period, um, Luther said you need to have a freestanding altar so that, that the pastor can proclaim over the elements to the people as they gather around the table. Because the Lord's Supper is sacramental, not a sacrifice. It's something God gives to you, not something you do for God. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so dear listener, if you are still listening, if we have not offended you, it set you off in and some sort of cognitive job. dissonance as we, we t- stripped away your commonly held beliefs on what it means to be Lutheran and instead our intent was always to put Christ there, that uh, what makes us awesome as Lutherans is not the fact that we have this one individual and that he uh, was bravely standing before the Roman Catholic Church and he really stuck it to him, but that we have the gospel that God uh, uh, revealed to Martin Luther 
and how Martin Luther, through the power of the Holy Spirit, held on to it, and others likewise held and on to it. And we have Dave Rudat. That's what makes this awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm kind of low on my words of affirmation, so thank you for putting me over the edge. So now, uh, now I can go for the rest of my day uh, knowing that uh, uh, I, I'm worth church. something. Yeah. You make the Lutheran Church, brother. <laughs> no. You make it just that little bit of a better place. <laughs> <laughs> so the gospel is the, was the thing that makes the Lutheran Church a, a good place to be. But you Not, preach that, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, putting taking away our myths. Are you going to say anything about me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we should probably end this. <laughs> it's too bad. Uh, all right. Well, if you've got, like I said before, if you've got a myth that you want that you're not sure whether it's true or not, uh, email us at castingnetspot at gmail dot com. Uh, we're just two uh, pastors who really want to preach Christ and Him for you. We want to preach the gospel. We 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 think of ourselves as history nerds, but we're not professional history nerds. We are just here uh, to be with God's people and to share with them Jesus, uh, who is the source of our real life and living faith. Mm-hmm.